0: Then, after fourteen years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation, and, meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure that I was not running, and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, who those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along.
1: Good morning, everyone. Uh, Thanks, Lynn. Thanks, Nigel. Hello to everyone on Zoom as well. Uh, I've got a, a question for you as we, as we start off, as I like to do. Um, if you were to think of the, the top 10 seminal moments in history, what, what would be in there? So, this is the most significant events in human history as we know it. What would be in your top 10? Do you think? Maybe um, the Gutenberg printing press in the 1400s, maybe that's in there somewhere. Storming of the Bastille, Um, Germany invading Poland, Um, or uh, the establishment of of Maoist China in 1949, is is that up there, landing on the moon, perhaps a bit more modern, Uh, Tim Berners-Lee inventing the internet, would that be in your top ten, Adam was telling me earlier, Facebook is something like 25 years old. Um, it's crazy, isn't it? Yes. Uh, audible gasps. Yeah. No, surely not. I'm not that old. I can't be. You know, Zuckerberg inventing Facebook. Would that be in the top ten? Uh, COVID-19, perhaps. was Is that there? Or um, Sean Dyche becoming Everton manager. Was that surely the start of great things for Everton? How about Paul's second trip to Jerusalem that we've just had Uh, read to us, how far up your list would that be? Maybe not as high as it should be. And one of the commentators I was reading says, we should read this passage about these events with reverent fear and gratitude. And at first glance, these things that we've just been reading about, the concerns seem pretty far removed from 21st century, don't they? But the stakes could not have been higher. And the consequences of uh, the meeting that, that Paul and Barnabas had with the apostles in Jerusalem, the consequences of that were huge, absolutely monumental, uh, even, even today. So this morning, we are going to put ourselves in Saul's sandals, uh, Paul's sandals, I should say. He's, we did his conversion last week, didn't we? And we're going to put ourselves in Paul's sandals and we'll consider why this was and actually is still so vital. What we read in these verses in the, first, in the start of chapter 2 here. We're going to think about what was at stake in his visit to Jerusalem. What was the verdict, the outcome of, of his time there? And then reflect on what it means for us today. What? Uh, uh, and the importance and the marks of of true gospel unity, what they what they are. Um, so let me pray as we start, and then we'll dig into um, to chapter two. Heavenly Father, we 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 read in in the Psalms of how precious unity is to you how good and how pleasing it is to you there you bestow life and blessing when brethren dwell together in unity and and we pray father that you would help us this morning as we look at this this chunk of your word we thank you for the apostle paul we thank you for your word we thank you for your gospel which saves and transforms we thank you for the freedom and life that it brings. And we pray that as we look at these words now, you would help us to understand them, help us to, to see what it means for us today. And help us, Lord, by your Spirit, would you help us to be a church family that is united in these great truths? Please, Lord, mold us into the, the people, the family, you want us to be for your glory and the extension of your kingdom we pray amen so first up paul's first uh, his, his second visit to jerusalem what was at stake well false teachers as you read through paul's letters in the new testament you 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 get the impression that false teachers were the bane of paul's life No sooner has a church been planted and he moves on to the next place that false teachers come in, start perverting the truth and and, and undermining him. And that's what we've seen so far in Galatians, isn't it? So he starts off uh, this letter, chapter 1, verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. So, as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, as we've in our series, more than just um, distorting or reversing the truth of the gospel, these false teachers are challenging his authority as an apostle as well. Saying, is he really an apostle like all the others? Did he just sort of make up this gospel that he's, he's been preaching? Well, he, he claims that he got it from God, but maybe he just nicked it from other people and it, and so we can just ignore him. Maybe what he says is just as valid as what we say, so feel free to ignore him. There's nothing special. Last week we saw him counter those, those claims that they were making. And central to his argument, in verse 11 to 12 of chapter 1, he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. That's the astonishing claim that that he makes and that he backs up from his, his life story that we saw last week. So why is he heading back to Jerusalem? 14 years after his conversion, he's heading back there. Well, verse 2, he says this, I went in response to a revelation, and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running, and had not been running, my race in vain. So it's interesting, isn't it? There's two things that he says, in, uh, it, that he tells us in, in that verse. Firstly, he's going back in response to a revelation. In other words, God has told him to go. God has told him to go. And secondly, notice he said he wanted to be sure he was not running uh, his race in vain. Now what did he mean by that? It, it sounds like he's afraid of something. What's he afraid of? Well, here's what he he can't be saying. He can't be saying that he's afraid that his gospel is, is wrong. Because last week, again, we saw that his confidence is not in himself. It's not that he's worked it all out himself, but instead his confidence is that the risen Lord Jesus directly revealed this gospel to him. So it's not a confidence problem for Paul. And besides, if he was worried he hadn't quite got the gospel right, well, he wouldn't wait 14 years um, to go and get it checked out, would he? No. God has told him to go at this time. So he's not worried about um, having the wrong gospel himself. And he's also not worried that the apostles in Jerusalem have got the wrong gospel either. At the end of last week's passage and his first trip to Jerusalem, they rejoiced and gave glory to God because of me and because of what he was preaching. It says in, in verse 24. It's the same gospel. The gospel that he preached, the gospel that the apostles in, in Jerusalem preach, is the same gospel. So the problem seems to be that false teachers are infiltrating the churches. Trying to drive a wedge between Paul on the one hand and Peter and the other apostles on the on the other and if so if paul 's just a minority on his own, well then, as far as the false teachers are concerned, well we can, we can ignore him and, and what he says, ignore his gospel, so they were doing that on the, on, the one, on the one hand, driving this wedge between uh, paul and, and and the apostles, and they were also teaching that Jewish laws and cultural conditions still applied for Christians today. So that if you want to be a Christian, you needed to be circumcised too. It's not enough for you just to have uh, Jesus. In short, they were saying every Christian needed to be Jew- become culturally Jewish too. So why is, why is Paul run, worried he's running his race in vain? Why is he heading up to Jerusalem as God told him to? His worry is how the apostles will react to these Jewish false teachers with their extra requirements, their earn your own salvation gospel. Will they reject it as he has or not? If they don't reject it, well then that's going to have a massive Impact on, on his ministry, on those who'd believed the gospel that, that he had preached. Those who'd believed that gospel and when he'd preached it, they would be told that they weren't proper Christians. That'd be huge, wouldn't it? So do you see what's at stake here? Look at how he describes it in verse 4. Uh, This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. It's a really striking image, striking words to use, but it sets out clearly the difference between the true gospel that he preached and the earn your salvation religion. That the false teachers were peddling. If you are following a earn your salvation religion, then it, it becomes all about what you have to do. The list that you have to tick off. There's an endless treadmill of obligations that, that you have to follow, an endless treadmill of, of stuff that actually never really gets to the heart of our problem the problem of our heart. The Bible tells us that actually we are slaves to sin. We are hardwired to ignore God and live for ourselves instead. And no matter how hard we try, we, we cannot change that. We cannot deal with our sinful hearts. No matter what we do or how hard we try, we can't do it. We're like whitewashed tombs. We might look presentable and clean on the outside. But inside, decay and death is there. So hence, this endless cycle of of guilt and obligation. We become a slave to the law because we're slaves to sin. and, And we want to change, we want to do something about it, but... But we just can't. How different the true gospel that Paul preached, that Paul set out, that Paul writes about in in the New Testament, how different it is to that. Look again at verse 4, at where he says our freedom is found. The false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus. Isn't that glorious? In Christ. The freedom we have is in Christ. It's not about what we have to do. But it's all about what Jesus Christ has done for you. The cross of Christ stands at the pivot point of the whole of history and says there is nothing you can do to change yourself. There is nothing you can do to make yourself right with God. There is nothing you can do to deal with your sin. If there was, well then the Son of God would not have needed to come and suffer and die upon that cross. Because it was the only way that's why he came that's why he 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 did it the cross of christ shows us that he has done it all it is finished jesus said on the cross the price is paid as as we sing and because of that glorious truth in christ we have freedom we are united with Christ. He he our lives are hidden and safe with him, Paul says elsewhere in, in, in Colossians. He takes our sin. He pays the debt that we owe. He gives us his righteousness so that so that when God the Father looks at us, he sees Christ's perfect righteousness, his perfect obedience, and our sins wiped away in Christ. We are accepted, we are loved, we are forgiven, we are justified. There's no endless wondering if we will ever do enough or be good enough. He's done it. We are free. So do you see what's at stake as Paul and Barnabas travel over to Jerusalem? The truth of the gospel itself, the freedom that we have in Christ, And on a practical level, if the apostles in Jerusalem accepted or even just mildly tolerated this false gospel, it would have split this fledgling church in two. You'd have had Jewish Christians doubting whether Gentile Christians are truly saved. Gentile Christians doubting whether Jewish Christians are truly trusting in Jesus for their salvation. You'd have two separate religions going on. So there's a huge amount at stake as uh, Paul and Barnabas make the trip to Jerusalem. But what was the verdict? What was the the outcome of their their time there? Verse 3. Yet not even Titus who was with me was compelled to be circumcised even though he was a Greek. Imagine there was a big sigh of relief from Titus at at, at that. Um, But it's a masterstroke from Paul in the first place to bring Titus along with him. Titus, a non-Jew, and Barnabas, a Jew. Titus being his kind of exhibit A, Gentiles can become true Christians too. Look Look at this guy, look at Titus. So as they debated the issues, the outcome was that not even Titus was compelled to be circumcised. And these um, Judaizers, these false teachers, uh, verse 5, look what Paul says, we did not give in to them for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And how about the kind of lingering questions that there were about, about his gospel and how that compared to the apostles' gospel uh, have a look at verse six, the end of verse six. As for those who were held in, in high esteem he 's talking about the apostles there, even in a sort of slightly weird way of 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 talking about them. Um, as for those who were held in high esteem, they added nothing to my message, and uh, verse eight and nine. Um, uh, verse 9, James, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognised the grace given me. They, they agreed we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Uh, circumcise. So the verdict of, of this trip and this meeting that they have is a resounding welcome and acceptance. Titus' acceptance by the Jewish um, Jerusalem apostles and, and Christians is a radical public statement. This is a huge moment in, in Christian history. That's why it should be up there in our top ten. Um, it's faith alone, in Christ alone, that brings salvation and, and freedom. So it's a, a hugely significant time. But what does it tell us about the marks of gospel unity? I've got three observations to, to, uh, to draw out that this, um, that this, that this passage um, shows us. The first thing I want to draw out is that gospel unity has a cultural freedom. Uh, has a cultural freedom the the verdict of the events that Paul speaks of here are a resounding welcome to anyone who is truly in Christ, regardless of their ethnicity or culture or, or background. Full stop uh, Tim Keller in, in his uh, commentary on this, makes the point that if that if you and i uh, if, if we 're Christians here this morning, we have more in common with a gospel believer living a nomadic existence in the Mongolian plains than we do with a non-believer who lives on our street who drives the same car perhaps even goes to the same uh, whose kids go to the same school as us isn 't that an extraordinary thing to, to get it, get our heads and our hearts around we have more in common with a nomadic believer in Mongolia than we do with a non-Christian living next door to us. That's extraordinary. This episode and uh, the rest of the New Testament show us again and again that Christian unity is never contingent on on having the same culture. Titus was not compelled to be circumcised. Despite I'm sure a lot of people urging him and telling him in no uncertain terms that he ought to be. But I wonder, where might we be at risk of explicitly or or implicitly insisting on cultural additions to the gospel? Perhaps if if, if, uh, if we elevate what we believe about baptism too highly... Or uh, different doctrines of um, in, in theology. Or even spiritual gifts. If we make those things, those beliefs, conditional on whether you're a true Christian or not. Well, we're, we're distorting the gospel. As you kind of look around. Um, on a Sunday, are there unwritten cultural barriers about perhaps what socio-economic group we, we belong to or are there unwritten expectations about how our children ought to behave or um, that kind of thing are, are there th- these sorts of unwritten cultural barriers that are getting in the way that are preventing people from, from feeling part of the community, of of the family here. Is there a, a true and genuine cultural freedom amongst us? Is there a love of, of diversity that there is within Christ among us? Uh, big questions to, to think about. So first the first mark, cultural freedom. Secondly, Gospel unity knows its limits. Gospel unity knows its limits. See, the whole point of this passage, the whole point of Paul's trip, was that he was not willing to be part of a church with those who, who were peddling, teaching this false gospel. But Whilst we must never exclude a brother or sister who, who God has made one of his people, someone who is truly in Christ... Um, that's the only basis for for our unity and, and fellowship with one another. If someone is in Christ, we should never exclude them. <laughs> um, if they are in Christ, that's the basis for our unity and our fellowship with them. Nothing else. So we cannot maintain a, a gospel unity at the expense of ditching the the true gospel so gospel unity knows its limits and thirdly gospel unity is marked by a practical loving care Uh, have a look at verse 10 all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor the very thing i've been eager to do all along remember the poor uh, this is the, the practical outworking of true gospel unity. This um, reflects God's heart for the poor more generally. Um, if you're part of a home group, I've, I've put some, some wider questions and, and, and passages that you can kind of delve into to look at that a bit more. We don't have the time to, to get into it right now. But remembering the poor is, is something that reflects God's heart and his compassion. But in this context and at this time, um, it's particularly significant. A prophet had, uh, called Agabus had foretold of, of a time of famine and the, ch- and the needs in Jerusalem were particularly significant. So Paul was concerned about uh, uh, arranging a collection from amongst his churches to take and give to the elders in Jerusalem. So do you see what's going on? gentile christians expressing practical love for their jewish brothers and sisters probably brothers and sisters they'd never meet and didn't know but this was just this is gospel unity in in action this is one of the marks of 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 true gospel unity this practical love and concern now, there's loads more we could uh, we could say about that, but it's it's clear it was a a priority for Paul and for the rest of the, the the apostles in Jerusalem as well. But how about for us? What's the challenge for you from this verse? What's the challenge for us as as a church family um, as we think about it? And as we as we uh, draw to a close, um, I, I came across um, a, a helpful sort of grid. Um, uh, one of the commentaries I was looking at: Live in Liberty," um, the spiritual message of, of Galatians. Um, Daniel Bush and Noel Jew look once to contrast the two types of unity that are going on. in in this passage. The one from Paul's side, the kind of the unity of the gospel. Its genesis is grace. Its currency is love. Its power is, is the spirit of Jesus. And the other is the unity of conformity. Coercive conformity. Its genesis is is man. That's where it starts from. It's it's currency, it's marked by law, slavery. And its power is coercion leveraged on fear. It's quite a quite a contrast, isn't it? And it's sobering to kind of look at those those two stark contrasts. And it's something for us to to pray into and and think about as a church, as individuals. What's our unity more like? What's which of 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 those is it? Because the very fact that Paul gave that that God gave Paul a, a revelation and told him to go and and sort this out, telling him to go to Jerusalem. Uh, to, to establish and show visibly the unity of the church shows the importance of pursuing unity amongst true Christian believers. And as we've seen in, in, in this passage, pursuing unity uh, and around the truth of the gospel secures and, and underpins the kind of unchanging biblical gospel message. And it isolates and it discredits false teachers who are not included in that unity. And it enables the, the mission of the church. Unity is a deeply precious and vital thing. And it's something we need to pray for. Paul says in Ephesians, we're to make every effort to, to maintain it. And as a, as a church, as, as, as elders, we are, we, we are united in the gospel, but as we've seen, there is freedom and space for disagreement on on things that are, are not of first importance, that are not of gospel issues. And as as elders, we're we're working through some things that are of the kind of secondary things that perhaps we're not quite exactly. Uh, On the the same page, uh, we're working through the whole area of of spiritual gifts that we started talking about um, uh, last year and what that means for us and what it looks like for for Grace Church and and in plants and and that kind of thing. Um, So it's a live thing for us as a church to be praying for unity, to be seeking it and to, to be working hard and thinking and praying together. And I can say it's that it's a privilege to be working alongside our elders. Um, they are brothers with big gospel hearts who are full of love for the Lord and His people. Um, and I, would, yeah, I'd love for you to be praying for us as we chew over these things, um, uh, as we. As we finish, as, as, as I pray, we need to, to wrap things up. I want to read um, some verses we looked at uh, at last month's uh, prayer meeting from Hebrews 10. Um, three lettuces we were thinking about back then. So the writer of the Hebrews says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. With a full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that we can come before you with confidence because of all that the Lord Jesus has done for us. Thank you for the freedom and joy that that, that, that comes from that. Thank you that our sins are dealt, were dealt with once and for all as Jesus shed his blood on the cross in our place. We pray that you would help us to be a, a church that that draws near to you with sincere hearts, with full assurance of faith. Would you grant us that full assurance, Father? Would you Help us to consider how we may spur one another on and encourage one another in the gospel that that we believe. And we pray, Father, that you would make us one. You would preserve the unity amongst us. You would help us be a church that is characterized by, by this love and grace and practical care that we see in the churches here. Please, Lord, would you work these these things in us for your glory, for the extension of your kingdom. Amen.